This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of The New Yorker magazine. On this program, we invite a poet to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. Then they read a poem of their own that's been published in the magazine. Today, my guest is Diane Seuss, winner of the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry and the same year's National Book Critics Circle Award for her collection, Frank Sonnets. Her honors also include a Guggenheim Fellowship and the 2021 John Updike Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Diane, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So the first poem you've selected to read is Ode by Jane Huffman. Tell us, what was it about this poem that caught your eye as you're looking through the archive? I, I got hooked on the archive, to be honest. Um, and seeing how The New Yorker has changed through the years in its uh, taste around poetry. And Jane's poem interested me in its circularity and how I couldn't decide if its final statement was a narrative one or a formal one, if it was really an ars poetica using uh, a narrative in an allegorical way or vice versa, and probably both because she's just that smart. Well, why don't we listen to the poem? This dance is reading Ode by Jane Huffman. Ode. Andrea taught me to ride side saddle. I rode in small and dizzying circles around her. I rode around her in small and dizzying circles. Past the mirror and past the mirror where one summer she was reared off by a stallion attacking his own flaring reflection. One summer she was reared off or almost. I rode into the acres of our sunflowers. In the acres, the fields, I overindulged in beauty. In the fields, I rode. Andrea leaned on a rail, her body a rail. Andrea leaned on the shadow of a rail. My shadow rode around her, the small bells of my intuition. She rang the small bells of the saddle. I was small and dizzying. I was dizzy. 
I rode in small and dizzying circles. Andrea taught me to ride, no stirrups, nothing suspending my body but intuition, the small and dizzying circles of my body. My intuition rode around me in small and dizzying circles, her shadow riding circles around me. I called her Andrea. That was Ode by Jane Huffman, which was published in the August 20th, 2018 issue of The New Yorker. I love this poem and I love that you picked it because as you said, it has a circularity, but it feels more like a um, spiraling up or is it spiraling down? I, I think there's this quality that is dizzying, of course, and it enacts what it says, which is one of the things I love that poetry can do so well. I was small and dizzying. I was dizzy. I rode in small and dizzying circles. And the difference between those, I think, is a world, right? And and it's it's the difference between being in a state or or uh, being called in a state and being experiencing a state. I don't know. How do you think about that? kind of type of dizzying and the circularity, as you put it, but also these circles that the speaker's going through. Yeah, in a way, I I do think of it as an ars poetica. Or a poem about poetry. Oh, yeah. Um, so um, one thing that really interests me in Jane's poetry and in this poem in particular is how there's this interchange between what's happening in the form and the music and then what's happening in the plot itself. And there's a kind of obsessiveness in the language that as she masters, as a speaker masters the horse, she's also sort of mastering the obsessiveness or finding its uses in the poem. So I think when she does things like I was small and dizzying. I was dizzy. I rode in small and dizzying circles. She's trying out various approaches to the literal, to the figurative, to the conceptual, and to the intuitive, and how to get all of those running at the same time. That's interesting, uh, because I've been thinking about it almost as more the emotional aspect. Maybe that's another adjective that comes to mind here because for me it feels like a love poem I mean you know it's called ode and I don't necessarily mean um you know only romantic love but a kind of poem of admiration and you know wonder how did you take it that way did you see this ode is it an ode to language itself is it an ode to Andrea um yeah I wondered one of my questions about the poem is who are we oding and she begins and ends, Andrea taught me, and then I called her Andrea. So that's the first and last word. Andrea is a person, a presence, but also a word, you know? <laughs> well, and, and it feels like it also is a sound. I mean, I, I feel like the beginning is so our sounds. You know, yes. road and circles around her, uh, past the mirror and past the mirror. The yes, uh, a, a great little doubling there, and she was reared off or summer, uh huh, flare. Yeah, is almost like an inversion of those words. It feels like an anagram of half of the words in the poem. 
it's also about reflections in all senses. Is it also telling us something about how memory works? Oh, interesting. Past the mirror and past the mirror where one summer she was reared or almost reared. And then we get down below. Um, Andrea leaned on a rail and then her body a rail. Andrea leaned on the shadow of the rail. So you'd see things moving from sort of plot memory to metaphor and then this shadowing, which is feels like the speaker internalizing whatever Andrea is. Um, and then my shadow rode around her the small bells of my intuition. So the actual bells and the saddle, this is something I would love to be able to achieve. It's something I've been working on, actually, to move between um, the concrete memory and whatever this thing is that happens to memory. And for me, that's the highest achievement of this poem. Yeah. What is that thing? Uh, tell me more about that. I don't know what the word is. If I knew, I would have mastered myself. Um, is it I, poetry? I mean, it, you know, you're saying this is a, you know, is the ode the the thing that happens to memory? It's not a memory only. It's an ode to a memory, maybe, or an ode to a person or an ode to a moment, which yeah. is shifting for both the speaker and for us now. And even an ode to kinds of thinking, kinds of thinking through. Um, it's funny that you asked if it's poetry or, or perfect, because I think for this speaker, it is that. And in what I'm working on, I'm trying to get to that. I'm trying to let poetry win. <laughs> but sometimes, and I think maybe this is a pandemic thing, it's hard to let it win, or it's hard to find a way to let it win. But in this poem, it ends up feeling my intuition rode around me in small and dizzying circles, her shadow riding circles around me. I called her Andrew. She achieves a wholeness there at the end through language that does seem to me to be an ode to whatever poetry is, to whatever poetry makes that is beyond the concrete and beyond even affection. I almost feel like looking over the poem again, the words that don't conform to the R sound start to stick out even more, which is one of the beautiful things, of course, about using rhyme, say, is once you don't, it suddenly it sticks out or using this kind of... Um, it's more than consonants, you know, it's, it's kind of a uh, concentration of sounds, which I love, but like the fields, beauty, bells, as you mentioned, intuition. Dizzy, yeah. That out of this field, as it were, of, of sounds, that really, it feels like intuition somehow. Yes, um, it, it feels developmental to me, like it moves from a more concrete, experience of reality and something that's internalized and, and intuitive, conceptual, um, aesthetic, intellectual. And, you know, maybe in this poem anyway, there's a completeness to that. Yeah. 
for me, there's, there's also that, you know, that quality people used to say about art being a mirror and it kind of is past the mirror. It says, you know, uh-huh. it's past the mirror and past the mirror. It's like past even the reflection of the reflection um, into something maybe uh, like intuition or like poetry or like honoring a moment later by trying to recreate it, which is harder than it sounds, as you point out, you know, it's hard to capture a moment, um, much less a person. And there's kind of a double portrait here, of course, the I and the Andrea, who at the end kind of become the same, right? Mm -hmm. They kind of transform and you don't even know, at least I don't, whether Andrea is real or rather only real. And I think that's wonderful. Yes. I guess for me, the other thing I would ask is just, I love an ode and I think odes mm-hmm. um, have that quality of direct address, you know, instead mm-hmm. of uh, talking about a thing, you're talking to it. Uh, if you're a Neruda, you're talking to laziness or, um, you know, Lucille Clifton, you're talking to your hips or to your mm-hmm. hair or you're praising the body. Um, how do you take the ode more generally and how does this fit for you? Mm. Well, um, like other poems by Jane, um, I think she's very intentional in naming it Ode without Ode to Andrea, Ode to, you know, horse, horsey rides. Um, so Ode becomes another archetype in the poem. And so it falls back on us just where we started this conversation, ode to what? And maybe ode itself, ode to odes. I love that. I think there's, uh, maybe it's another way to put it is it's praising all of it, you know, mm-hmm. the thing it isn't interested in. And that's to me a sign of a really interesting poetic mind is someone who takes the everyday and makes it extraordinary, but also sort of says, you know, there's something ordinary about extraordinariness and I mm-hmm. want to describe it as best I can. Rather, I want to enact it as best I can. And she enacts it. I mean, I've never done what this poem describes, but I'll never forget that I was in this poem and that for the length of the poem, which I've spiraled through and, and spiraled through rereadings of, I'm there. And Part of, um, I think, how she achieves that is that she doesn't overdo it in terms of description or particularizing. So instead of a full-blown narrative description, it's more kinetic than that. And she allows the concrete to speak for itself in a honed way. For instance, a part of the poem I love Um, I rode into the acres of our sunflowers. That interested me, that hour. In the acres, the fields, I overindulged in beauty. That's an interesting moment in the poem. In the fields, I rode. And so there's this moment where she could have done one of the mistakes I might make, which is like to go full hog into the sunflowers. (laughs) Um, and she just makes it a sound event in a lot of ways. I rode into the acres of our sunflowers and the acres, the fields. I overindulged in beauty. 
And she lets that overindulgence rest there without explanation. I love that moment. You're right to point it out. It's really beautiful. And I love how you said she makes it a sonic experience. And I think sometimes we forget as writers, as readers, you know, that that's almost enough, you know, and, and sometimes we try to explain the inexplicable. And I, I think that letting that mystery into the poem or stay is what keeps us often. And I've been thinking about mystery a lot in poems and the ways that there's always something in a poem that I love that I couldn't tell you why. And it's maybe even odd. Um, this isn't the case here, but, um, you know, uh, there is that moment where it's past the mirror and past the mirror. I can't tell you why that works, but it works really well to me. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I can think why, but my first impulse is there's something great about that. Like I, I trust this person who's willing to say a thing because it needs to be said and isn't worried about like some notion of what's right or, or how to explain herself. That's ultimately the about maybe of this poem. Um, it needed to be said, and so she said it. It needed to be enacted, so she did it. And that's quite gutsy for, for any poet, let alone a younger poet. Wonderfully said. Now, in our August 16th, 2021 issue, The New Yorker published your poem, Gertrude Stein, which you'll read for us in a moment. Is there anything brief you'd like to say about the poem first, something you want listeners to know? Well, yeah, just a couple things. Um, I refer in the poem to Picasso's portrait of Gertrude Stein, which uh, if you haven't seen it, look it up. It's very interesting. And you begin to see the beginning of Cubism and his approach to portraiture. So that's there. And then um, if you haven't read Gertrude Stein's Tender Buttons, I do make a reference to that collection at the end of the poem. And I love the phrase Tender Buttons for this poem. And, and so when you hear it, I hope you understand that. And there's a dog in it, too. <laughs> well, you've sold me already. <laughs> Gertrude Stein, a dog and tender buttons. <laughs> she had a dog. What was her dog's name? Oh, I can't remember, I but I, name. yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. Yeah. Um, here's Diane Seuss reading her poem, Gertrude Stein. Gertrude Stein. I just brushed the dog there on the dog's couch. I was wearing a black, well, to call it a gown is a criminal overstatement a black rag. It became clear to me, and when I say clear, I mean the moment went crystal cathedral. I could see my life from not a long shot, but what they used to call an increment apart, a baby step to the right or left of myself, about the width of a corrective baby shoe. There I was, broad-shouldered, witch-shaped, without the associated magic, with my dog in my shack, once mauve faded to pink, beyond sex or reason. A numbness had set in. Gertrude Stein, Picasso's portrait of her, that above it all, or within it all, 
look on, not a face, but the planes that suggest a face. The eyes aren't really lined up right, or the real eyes that are peering from behind the cutout shapes of eyes. The couch had been a sort of, not a gift, but a donation of sorts from a person with plenty of money. When it was dragged into my house, it was already stately, but with worn patches and stains. A trinity of dogs over time had laid claim to it, three egotists. To brush the dog meant I had to visit it in its monarchy. And in that visit, that single prismatic increment, I saw I'd become, maybe all arrive in their own time, some before dying, some after, a draped artifact, haystack or headstone rising out of the plains. And then with fascination and a degree of sadness and even objectivity, I loved as I once loved tender buttons myself. That was Gertrude Stein by Diane Seuss. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Wow, that's an incredible poem. <laughs> you know, this is, seems obvious to say, but you read it how it's written, which is to say those dashes, those pauses, those interruptions are such an integral part of the speaker who I absolutely love too. And it's so funny Um the width of a corrected baby shoe. I mean, that's <laughs> so poignant. And then this moment of, uh, I think maybe one of my favorite moments is a trinity of dogs over time had laid claim to it. Three egotists. <laughs> <laughs> and to know a dog is to <laughs> the size of the egotist dog and then the, you know, sort of selfless great parts of dogs too. I was wonderfully sad. I seem to raise dogs that are egotists without any selflessness. <laughs> And children. I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, we should say that um, Gertrude Stein's dog's name was Basket. Basket. That's right. Perfect, right? Absolutely perfect. Someone has to write that poem, too. But in this poem, I love this, how steady it is in what feels like this inevitable end, which is myself. And, you know, in a way, it's the song of the self but it, it uses this uh, 
the dash, you know, this kind of Dickinsonian technique, but also Stein, of course, some part of her repetition, but I think uh, really capturing thought, you know, it feels like how one speaks, but also how one thinks um, and making them work the same in this poem, I think is one of its magics. There's a bit of Picasso too, you know, the sort of hinging these planes together through dashes. <laughs> it's visual as well as sonic. Yes, it is. Yeah. You know, I thought of this as having narrower lines than usual, but I guess I'm a wide body. I can't help it. <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine uh, the poem without these lines like, and when I say clear, I mean the moment went crystal cathedral, <laughs> which is, is great. And, um, you know, it feels like it's just rushing right there. And there, you know, that's the line you're, you're um, pivoting from. And when I'm teaching poetry, I often try to get my students or the writers to think about, you know, what's the line of your specific poem? I mean, sometimes people, as you said, have a preference. I think I write long lines and they're like, you know, you write short lines. <laughs> Two <laughs> words is not long, you know. Um, but I think what you've done is really achieve this, um, you know, it becomes a kind of fulcrum. And then the rest of the poem goes back and forth from that. Overstatement, a black rag, it became clear to me. You start to see a world in those lines. And I, I love that. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, you know, this is a poem, maybe in a sense, it's like Jane's Ode, um, although managing language in a really different way, but it does describe a moment. And that self-love at the end is momentary as well. <laughs> I'll have you know. <laughs> um, but but it, even there, you even say, I'm sorry to interrupt, but even there you say, and a degree of sadness and even <laughs> objectivity. The poem isn't just uh, saying it's temporary. It's also saying, what an achievement. And then the self is almost sort of... Um, I loved, which is past tense, of course, mm -hmm. uh, myself. And I love, as I once loved, tender buttons. <laughs> yeah, so. You is know, it that I, you can't love it anymore? Uh, the speaker, I mean, you know, or is it that it's a youthful love? Or is it that, you know, Tender Buttons is such an important book. And I remember reading it for the first time and realizing you can write about food this way. And, you know, yeah. You you can make something that feels cubist on the page. Um, you can translate, you can transform, and that language doesn't need to tell a story to represent something. As you said earlier about Ode, if I say it, I loved, as I love tender buttons myself, something isn't right with that, um, if it were in present tense. So I, I think it's something about the ephemeral nature of connecting with something or loving something, you know, whether literature or yourself. You said it so much better than I could. So thank you. Um, one of the other things I think, um, and I'm sure our listeners know is that famous quote that Picasso said when someone said, oh, it doesn't look like her, his portrait of Gertrude Stein, he said, it will. Yes, and there's a kind of sense of time in the poem of inevitability, whether it's these dogs, which are the same kind of dog, <laughs> egotists, 
Um, but then also the almost rush of the end, that single prismatic increment. I saw I'd become maybe all arrive in their own time, some before dying, some after, you know, like this kind of becoming. And, and that's something that I think Stein does well. You do extremely well. And in this poem, you're, you're kind of uniting them and using her to talk about what's it mean to become. Yeah. And, um, you know, my becoming, I don't know about her becoming, but I think this is true. My becoming occurs in a moment. And even though there is something solid in this poem, more solid than some of my other poems, I think, there I was, broad-shouldered, witch-shaped, without the associated magic, damn it, <laughs> with my dog in my shack. You know, it's a coming to terms later in life with this is it. This is what I am, what I've come to. And some come to that before dying, some after. You know, you, you become an artifact, like Stein looks in that painting, a draped artifact, haystack or headstone rising out of the plains. You know, one of my, my um, English teachers when I was in college said, die, you're in danger of becoming an artifact. <laughs> I think I have arrived, darling, I've arrived. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, isn't that something? Um, it really is like in Picasso's line about Stein, she will she'll grow into the painting, basically. I have grown in to the painting. I, I'm at that spot. Well, it feels both comfortable, perhaps like the dogs on the, the worn couch, but also I think um earned and kind of um I don't know, the, the clarity, mm -hmm. part of the pleasure or the becoming. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. I feel like it's refining itself and part of its language is getting to the point where one can, you know, if it started like, I found myself on this couch, that's where I am. <laughs> but instead it's like, I, it's an increment, as you say, an increment mm -hmm. of art. And then, yes. you know, this kind of comfort I would say, which feels earned to me in the sense the speaker has, you know, they're, they're uh, without the associated magic, but they're also able to laugh about um, these moments, um, these dogs, and even the self, I think. Yeah, she knows who she is. She does. <laughs> you know her. <laughs> well, I think what I, I think is so interesting, and, and maybe this is a way we can talk a little bit about Frank, uh, your book of sonnets, is how you think about form, you know, and how you approach it, because I think you approach it your own way. One of the things I admire about your work, but how did you come to the sonnet? How, you know, like we were talking about odes earlier, was the sonnet something that you always were thinking about? Or, you know, in this poem, isn't the sonnet, I find sonnets when I write them, it's hard to stop, you know? So I'm almost asking you, you know, as a therapist, can you tell me how to stop <laughs> writing sonnets? No, anyway, um, no, but the real question I have is how do you see sonnets? Um, how do you see sequences? How do you think about sort of the book as a whole and do they accumulate? I'm sorry, this is many questions, but I, while I have you, I thought I would ask. Yeah, um, well, 
I think like so much of my life and my person, as well as my poems, it sort of found me. I was, um, I was in Washington State at a residency driving back from Cape Disappointment, um, which I didn't have the guts to really walk out to the lighthouse and see. And I started narrating to myself on the way back. I drove all the way to Cape Disappointment, but didn't have the stones, guts, courage, whatever, to get out of the car. Uh, Rental, blue Ford Focus. I had to stop along the roadside and pee. I don't know what's up with my bladder. So I'm I'm narrating what happened like two increments ago, you know, just, just a minute ago. And I wrote some lines down, and by the time I got back to my little pad, I got them on the computer, and I saw, oh, you know, this this could be 14 lines. <laughs> Eureka. Um, and also, Frank O'Hara had stepped in. So as I'm driving, I say, in my mind, I'm kind of like Frank O'Hara, except without the handsome nose and penis and the New York school and Larry Rivers, i.e. I'm not like him at all, um, except maybe in this one way, in one way that I can be serendipitous and spontaneous about language. And so really the entire book found me on that little road trip in that poem through Frank O'Hara and um, through a certain feeling. And again, like Ode, like this poem, it's probably not a feeling that has a word associated with it. And I'm always interested in, in trying to get those on the page. So there's that. And, and then I saw, oh, I came to a couplet-ish thing here. Mm-hmm. You know, people have been saying you should write a memoir, which is code for something else. <laughs> like your life has been, ooh. Um, and so I'd been thinking about memoir, but I couldn't hear it in prose. It, it seemed leaden. And I thought I could write something like a memoir and sonnets. And I'd been thinking a lot about how do we remember? What is the nature of memory? And so I wanted it to be flexible enough to consider that as well as the memories themselves. Again, like Ode, you know? And so then then the question was, how do I manage a single 14-line form across that kind of acreage. And it seemed like I needed to intuitively allow the form to expand, compress, become really almost little uh, micro fiction pieces up against very music-based pieces, and then just see where it led me. So there was never a moment of, you know, I shall write sonnets because it's the perfect form for what I'm up to, even though it happened to be. So, you know, I trust the spirits more than I trust myself. I read that essay, Deadism, which I constantly quote. (laughs) Of mine, you mean? Of yours, yes. Who else? (laughs) And that resonated so much for me because... Uh, your idea, like, let's quit 
battling the idea of the death of poetry and let's write from death itself. And I feel like in a lot of ways, that's what I've always done. Mm. My father died young and I had to get a relationship with death in order to maintain some kind of wholeness that included him. And so your essay had a huge impact on my seeing, oh, that's what I've been up to. Oh, that's really kind of you to say. It's true. Well, I see it in your work, though, this, this, um, because I think the concern is with the living in the end, but you have to embrace that, as you said, and, and Gertrude Stein, I think, does that. You know, the to brush the dog man I had to visit in its monarchy. And in that visit, I saw I'd become, there is a kind of imperious tone in this poem. Maybe I learned to be a queen by watching my dogs be, <laughs> be monarchs. <laughs> well, they probably were themselves at least, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you had me at dog. Um, you've kept me with Gertrude Stein and <laughs> me with yourself because I think it's, it's really a triumphant poem in the end. So thank you so much. I hope so. I hope so. It's a hard one love. I want to say it's a hard one love, honey. Diane, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been a real pleasure. I've learned so much and I know our listeners will too. Oh, I've had such a good time. I'm glad we could be a little joyful together about poetry. Gertrude Stein by Dan Zeus, as well as Jane Huffman's Ode, can be found on NewYorker.com. Diane's latest book is Frank Sonnets. Her next collection, Modern Poetry, is forthcoming in 2024. You may subscribe to this podcast, The Fiction Podcast, The Writer's Voice Podcast, and The Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and The New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses, with help from Hannah Eisenman. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new a translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs>